This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so groups of people often have a distinctive character trait, something that sets them apart, right? Not just what they do, but, but who they are. And what is it that you think we're known for as followers of Jesus? What, is you think, what do you think the world thinks of when they think of the church? Or what is our defining mark? What is that distinctive character trait that they see when they look at us, that, they, that comes to mind when they think of us? And, and not the trait that we hope we're known by, not the trait that we should be known by, but the trait that we're actually known by. What do you think that is? Fire off some answers. What do you think the world thinks of when they think of us? Judgmental, hypocritical, what else we got? Rules, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. We're unloving, aren't we, at times? What else we got? Critical, rhyming with that, political. Like we could probably go on forever with all the things that the world thinks of when they think about us. And you know what no one said? Love. That's what we're not known by. And you know what Jesus said should be the singular thing we should be known by? Love. It's like, why is that? Why is it that the singular thing Jesus says we are to be known for is the thing we're least known for? And I don't think it's because we're naive and we don't know. I don't think it's because we never heard. I don't think it's because we didn't get the memo. I think it's because we misunderstand. I think we misunderstand three things. I think we misunderstand who it is we're commanded to love. I think we misunderstand how we're commanded to love, right? What this love looks like. And I think we misunderstand why we're commanded to love, what it is that enables us to love. And I think it's our misunderstanding on the who and on the how and on the why that results in our not being known by our love. And so this morning, as we continue on in our series, Distinctives, we're going to look at the singular defining distinctive character trait that Jesus said should be true of us both individually as his followers and collectively as his body, as the church, that of love. As Jesus shows us who we are called to love, how we're called to love, what this love looks like, and why we're called to love, what enables us to love. And so if you haven't already, I'd love to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 3 in verses 34 and 35. And while you're, while you're turning there, to kind of set the stage, chapter 13 begins the second section of John. It begins a section commonly referred to as the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. It's the beginning of this final meal that Jesus would share with his disciples on the night before he was crucified, a meal that we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. And Jesus and his disciples, they're reclined around a table. And he says in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And you might be thinking, like, what's so new about that? I mean, if you flip back to Matthew 22, Jesus said basically that very same thing just earlier that same week. Distilling the entire Mosaic law down to 
a single word, that of love, conveyed by a single command, the, the great commandment, saying that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He's referring back to a passage in Deuteronomy 6. But Jesus didn't stop there. He continued on, and he, and he said, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor, and you shall love them as yourself. He's referring here to a passage in Leviticus 19, where God, he not only gave his people a command to love, he gave them a very clear way in which they were to love, very specific ways in which they were to love. Ways that included uh, leaving a portion of their crop in the field for the poor for them to glean off of. Uh, of not oppressing your neighbor or taking advantage uh, of your neighbor. No, no injustice of any kind. It, it included paying your workers a fair wage and paying them on time. And it included not slandering your neighbor or hating your neighbor, not lying to your neighbor or lying about your neighbor. And he said, on these two commandments, on loving God and on loving others, depend all the law and the prophets. That love was not something Jesus suggested we should do. It was not a good idea that he recommended. It wasn't a life hack. No, love was something Jesus commanded us as his followers to do. Love has always been something God has commanded of his people, which is kind of the point that Jesus is making here. We are commanded to love, and this command to love, it is new in that it's not worn out, right? It's not like that old pair of running shoes that just sits in the corner. No, this is a command that over centuries, over millennia, to this day remains fresh, as though uh, you just took these shoes out of the box even though you've run many miles in them. But at the same time, there's a new context to this command to love one another. This command was given to a new community out of a new covenant, to a family. And not a family who had descended from Abraham, but a, a family who was united together in Christ. And Jesus is saying here in John 13 that this family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is who we are commanded to love. But can we be honest, like, uh, raise your hand if you're here in the room, right? Uh, Y'all don't like it when I do that, do you? You don't. Some of you have never raised your hand when I ask you to do that because you know what? We don't like being told what to do, do we? We don't. So what do we do when we're told what to do? We try and find a way out of it. I'm not in the room. I don't have to raise my hand. Or like homework, for example. Remember homework? Woo! My boys remember homework. We, uh, we spent more time trying to avoid homework than just doing the homework, didn't we? Right? And we see a story like that in Luke 10 where this lawyer um, was trying to justify himself, Jesus says, as he tells the story. And this lawyer, knowing he couldn't restrict how he had been commanded to love, he attempted, and mind you, failed miserably, at limiting who he was commanded to love, restricting his definition of neighbor. And don't we do the very same thing? Don't we play that very same game in this never-ending search for a legal loophole? 
limiting who we're commanded to love, justifying our lack of love for others. We have, as N.T. Wright says, defined the one another so tightly, so narrowly, that it means only love for the people who reinforce your own sense of who you are. We only love the people we like, and we only love them when we want to. And rather than loving others for who they are, as they are, where they are, we withhold our love from anyone that we deem unworthy, anyone unlovable, only loving some future fixed version of them at times, only loving them when it's not inconvenient for us, only loving them when it doesn't disrupt the course of our lives. If I've got time, I'll love you. Otherwise, nah. Man, if we look at the whole of Scripture, Jesus doesn't only command us to love one another, does he? He doesn't only command us to love fellow followers of, of Jesus. He, he also calls us to love our neighbor. He calls us to love anyone that God has placed in our lives. We see that in Luke 10. We see that in Matthew 22. But he ain't done there, is he? No, he goes even further. And he challenges us to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. Love one another, love our neighbor, love our enemy. I mean, there's no one left, is there? I think everybody fits into one of those three buckets. He's essentially called us to love the world. It covers the entire spectrum of humanity, right? Nobody should be excluded from our love because nobody is excluded from God's love. We are to love those whom God loves. And Jesus said, God so loved the world. So there you go. We gotta do something with that, don't we? Here's the thing. If we're not able to love one another, those that we should have the most in common with, those whom we have so much in common with, we refer to each other as family, how are we ever gonna love our neighbor whom we have much less in common with? Or even our neighbor, not even our neighbor, but our enemy. See, we misunderstand who it is we're commanded to love. But not only that, we misunderstand how we're commanded to love because I think we misunderstand what this love we're called to share looks like. And Jesus, he goes on to verse 34, and he tells them how to love. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And what he's saying here is that our love for one another, it should reflect Christ's love for us. It should be a mere image of his love looking just like his love for us. And what I love, Jesus didn't just tell us how to love, did he? No, he showed us what love is. Man, are we all singing foreigner right now? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Well, if you were singing that you still are if you weren't. Now you are. I'm sorry. Um, but he showed us. He showed us, not in John 3.16, but in the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. You're actually going to notice as you read your Bible more and more, a lot of the 3.16s are really kind of awesome. But 1 John 3.16, he says, by this we know love. By this we know what love looks like. He says, Jesus laid down his life for us. That is is what love looks like. 
And this is exactly what we declare in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, he was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, didn't he? He suffered emotionally. He, he was betrayed by his friends, those who were closest to him. He was mocked by his enemies. He, he suffered emotionally and he suffered physically. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was whipped and he had a crown of thorns thrust into the head of our king. He suffered. He was crucified. The most physically excruciating, painful method of death ever invented by man. Nailed to a cross where he died. That is the extent of Christ's love for you. Of his love for us. For me. For the world. It was a love that knew no limits. A love that knew no bounds. Later that evening, Jesus, he would go on to say to his disciples, greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. And as the Lamb of God, that is exactly what he did, isn't it? He died to take away the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus, he, he took on our shame and our sin. He paid our debt. He died our death. Right, tearing down that barrier our sin built that stands between us and God. Bridging that chasm our sin dug that separates us from God. Not because he had to, but because he chose to, because he loves you. He went through all of that because he loves you. But think about that for a second. Jesus did that for you. I love you. He did this for you, not because of anything you did that was deserving. But in spite of everything you did that was undeserving. Jesus didn't lay down his life for a friend of God. He laid down his life for enemies of God. That's who we were in our sin, enemies of God. Having sinned against God. And when Jesus commands us to love one another, to love our neighbor, to love that person in need that God has put in our life, when God calls us to love our enemy, he's asking you to do the very same thing he did for you. To live just as I have loved you, to love just as I have loved you. And as a result, 1 John three sixteen says, we ought to lay down our lives for each other holding everything that God has blessed us with with open hands, ready to give it back. Laying it all down for the good of others, whether it's our finances or possessions, whether it is our status or influence, whether it is our power or privilege, whether it is our, our time or our own lives, if need be. That is what it means to love like Jesus. That is the extent of the love that we are called to share with one another, with our neighbor, even with our enemy. That is how far we are to go, to love without limits. That is the command that has been given to all who have accepted this invitation 
who have answered the call to follow Jesus. That is what it means to faithfully follow the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. That is the type of love the world should see when they look at us. That is the type of love that should come to mind when the world thinks of us. A love that reflects Christ's love for you. A selfless, sacrificial love that lays down its life for the good of others. And right about now you're thinking, Pastor Ash, that seems pretty impossible. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I want to do that. It's beyond anything we're capable of on our own, isn't it? On our own, it is impossible for us to love like Jesus. But we're not left on our own, are we? When Jesus commanded us to love one another just as I have loved you, the Greek there for just as, uh, there's, there's kind of a double meaning going on here. It is not only comparative, showing us how we are to love, what love looks like, it is also causative. It's showing us the why, revealing the source of this love, what it is that, that enables us to love like Jesus. Well, what, what he, Jesus is saying here is that my love for you, it is both an example of love and the source of love. It is both the how and the why. Because our love for one another is in response to Christ's love for us, isn't it? It is in response to his love. Loving one another out of his love, out of an overflow of his love, originating from his love. Pastor John, he, he writes in his epistle in chapter four, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God who is himself love. And the love that God has shown in us through Jesus, it's, it is not some transactional love. There's no quid pro quo with this. It wasn't a transactional love dying in hopes that we might live, loving in hopes that we might love. No, the love of God, it is, it is incarnational. It is a love that, that came down to us in our need. It is a love that that became flesh and dwelt among us. It is an experiential love, a love that we feel and experience, a love that we abide in and live in and walk in. It is a love that is transformational, a love that does not leave you the way it found you, a love that changes us from the inside out, a love that softens hearts and enables us to love others in the way that we have been loved. We love, we are enabled to love because God, who is himself love, first love us. And what that means theologically, John says, is that anyone who does not love does not love God. And what that means for us practically, John says, is that if anyone has what someone else needs and yet closes his hands and closes his heart against the one in need, how does God love abide in them? And the answer is it doesn't, at least not fully. Right? You do not love God if you do not love others. It's no different than what we saw the other day. That uh, It's no different than saying that you have fellowship with God while at the same time walking in darkness. Right? Our inability to reflect Christ's love, it indicates that we haven't fully received his love. That we still don't fully comprehend the, the depth of his love. That we haven't experienced the extent 
of his love. For one of a number of reasons, either because you were unable to receive it because you simply didn't know. No one had ever told you. And what I know to be true now is that you will leave this place knowing, knowing of God's love for you, singing of God's love for you. Sometimes though we feel, sometimes we feel unworthy of God's love though, don't we? We feel unworthy because of all that we've done or not done. We feel unworthy because of what has been done to us. Sometimes we feel unworthy. Sometimes we feel undeserving of God's love. Maybe you were taught that God's love is conditional, that you need to earn God's love, thinking that the more, there's more you need to do in order for God to love you. Doing things so that God might love you. You might be here right now in hopes that God might love you more. Serving so that God might love you. Giving so that God might love you. Rather than doing all of that because of his love for you. We feel unworthy. We feel undeserving. And like both of those are a lie. They are a lie the enemy whispers in our ear. Because what I need you to know is there is nothing you need to do in order for God to love you more than he already does. We're unable, we're unworthy, we're undeserving. Sometimes, though, like when I ask you to raise your hand if you're in the room and we don't, sometimes we're a little stubborn. Yeah, amen. You can say it. Jason's not saying amen on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sometimes we're just unwilling. We get a little arrogant at times, like, I'm good, I've got this. Sometimes we just, we want to prove to God how good we are. We want him to be so proud of us for what we have done. I got this, God. I got this Savior thing. Sometimes we're arrogant. Sometimes, though, we're skeptical. And we assume this love comes with strings attached that we're not so excited about. Wondering what the catch is. But whatever the case may be, we cannot reflect a love we have not first received. We will never be able to love like Jesus if we have not first encountered the fullness of his love and experienced the extent of his love and been transformed by the depth of his love, knowing what that love looks like. And now whether, whether you're here today and you just met Jesus for the very first time or you have known of him your entire life, there's likely an area of your life that you have held back from him. An area of your life you have not yet fully surrendered to him. An area of your heart that remains hardened, possibly calloused from past pain, and you've not yet allowed the love of Christ to penetrate just yet, not all the way. And that not only prevents you from loving like Jesus, it prevents you from experiencing the depth of his love for you. I don't want that for you. My prayer for you is that whatever that peace that you're holding back from him is that you would lay it out today, that you would surrender it to him, allowing his love to embrace you, all of you, not just the parts you want him to see and know, but every piece of you knowing he already knows. And he loves you in spite of all of that. 
I want you to receive the fullness of that love first and foremost for you, but then for everyone around you. Receiving that love so you can reflect that love. Because by this distinctive, Jesus says in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. The entire world will recognize us as his followers. If you have love for one another, if you love others the way that I have first loved you, that is our distinctive character trait, that of love. Not the size or aesthetic or denomination of our church. Not the number of Bibles you own or the number of verses you've memorized or the number of missionaries you support. Not the way that we worship God, not our theological knowledge of God. Certainly not our political affiliation nor our doctrinal beliefs, none of it. None of that is what Jesus says is how we should be known. No, the world will recognize us both individually as his followers and collectively as his body, as the church, by our love for others. Love is our defining mark. Love is the distinctive character trait of his people. Love is how we are to be known. Love is how we are to be recognized. Not just by one another, but by the world. Because see, here's the thing. When we... When we love like Jesus, and we point people to Jesus, they are drawn to that love. They want to encounter and experience more of that love, and they will be transformed by that love. But when we fail to love like Jesus, we do all those things that we said in the beginning, and we end up pushing people away from Jesus, further and further away from Jesus. We push people in the church away from Jesus to the point that they want nothing to do with him or his bride anymore. And that's on us. Fourth century church father John Chrysostom writes, when the unbelieving world observes us attacking our neighbors more savagely than any wild beast, they will call us the plague of the world. No longer a blessing, but a plague. Hear me, the way that we live and the way that we love tells the world about the way that God loves. That is how they will learn about God's love is through the way we love. And so I wanna ask you this. What story does your life tell the world? What story does your love of the world tell the world? How are you known? How are we known? Henry Nouwen writes that the Christian life, following Jesus in a life of discipleship, is about discovering how God's presence can be made visible here and now by our love for each other. That is why Jesus says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because in loving others, we live out our love for God. That is why he said this is one singular command, not two. It's not part A and part B. It is one command. And our mission as a church, it came from Jesus, didn't it? To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
teaching them and baptizing them, loving them, caring for them. And we, we phrase that as we want to help more people know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus, don't we? Our mission comes from Jesus and it's all about Jesus. And our method, how we go about doing this, and it also comes from Jesus. Loving God and loving others. Pointing people to Jesus by loving them like Jesus. That is how we help them know him. An incarnational love made manifest through our lives so that his love is seen and known and felt and experienced and shared and reflected. Love is the command. Not a suggestion, but a command. Love is our distinctive, amen? Love is how we will be known by the world. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.